Okay. Now's the time for the leader to qualify. Stand. Stand in front of here. Oh, I'll just stand here. Okay. Hi, guys. I'm Abby. I'm compulsive overeater recovering bulimic. Hi. Hi. Um, the list can go on and on for any newcomers who are here. Anorexic, compulsive exerciser, body dysmorphic, addict, perfectionist, all of it. Um, I qualify uh, for these rooms, and I'm so glad that I'm here. And it's been actually uh, a little over 10 years that I've been in these rooms and been abstinent. And um, it's funny, I was so excited this morning when uh, my sponsor walked in unbeknownst to me, and it's uh, fellows, it makes me feel really comfortable. And for me, that's God. And that's why I come into these rooms to be reminded like to go out in the world and look for God. And that is certainly not what I walked into these rooms for 10 years ago. What I walked into the rooms for 10 years ago, so I'll backtrack to a little traditional, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. I kind of want to focus actually most on like what the journey's been the last 10 years, but what it was like was that I was so miserable because over 10 years ago, January, of course, my New Year's resolution was to lose weight because that was my only New Year's resolution, naturally. And um, the way I knew how to do it over 10 years ago was through diet and diet programs and pills and over-exercise. And um, I was third time around in a commercial diet program and going to the weekly meetings and gaining like an, like eight ounces every week and restricting and binging and um, not able to over-exercise like I wanted and just completely demoralized when I got on that scale Saturday morning and the woman told me I gained weight. And it would just take me out for the rest of the weekend. It would be Saturday morning at 9 a.m., and I would have plans the rest of the weekend, but what would happen is there'd be like this split in my brain. Like, I'd go pretend to be out in the world and pretend like everything was okay, and inside I was just completely miserable because I'd gained weight. Like, why was I, how was I supposed to go out and navigate in the world when I had gained weight? Like, I was a complete and utter failure. You know, not looking at any other part of my life, you know, to give me any sort of sense of self-worth. It was because physically I was not perfect in my own eyes. Like, I didn't deserve to go out in the world. And that was just a really hard way to live. And I just had exhausted all of the um, all of the old tools, I called them my broken tools, that I knew to, like, fix it, which was bulimia, over-exercise, you know, anorexia, for a little while, because I that was way too hard for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did it, like, like I do everything, like, you know, to the extremes, like an addict, you know. I did it so well in college that I gave myself mono, like, six months after I delved into that, um, that part of the disease. But, um, you know, the messages I got as a as a kid, which is sort of what helped form this wonderful eating disorder, which I actually am grateful for because at a very early age, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful that I found these rooms when I was 24 years old because I don't know how other people go and navigate life without 12 steps and 12 traditions. Like anybody, like normies too. So it's the way I live my life today in every single area. And it's why I have the life, the life I have today. So, but, um, just to touch back on what it was like in my brain before I came into program. I got a lot of messages when I was younger um, from my mom, um, and it's important because it's coming up again today, of if the outside isn't perfect, if all the outside stuff isn't perfect so we can tell you know everybody else in the community how perfect it is, then you may as well just not live. You know, if you're not the best at academics, if you're not the prettiest in the room, if you're not the best you know at the sports you're playing, like you might as well just kill yourself. And when I was younger, my first disease wasn't actually um, 
compulsive eating and you know this is just my story again for anybody who comes in this is just my story you don't have to do it the way I do it these are all suggested tools and steps and this is just my experience if you resonate with any of it but um, when I was seven I developed a, a compulsive disorder that had a physical component I pulled out my eyelashes and eyebrows and that was not okay for my mom that was super not okay um, she had gotten a lot of positive feedback about the way I looked when I was younger until seven and like that was something to fix and that's something that I had to fix at seven years old. Clearly, I was not engaging this behavior willingly. This, I was completely powerless. They, uh, you know, I wish I'd grown up in the internet today where like that's now, and that's the power of community. Like now people understand these things. Um, you know, we're not alone, but I very, very, very much felt alone and like a freak and like what seven-year-old goes to therapy. And so I knew there was something I felt and I had been told there is something wrong with me and you better make all the rest of your life look good to compensate for this like major, major flaw. Um, of being a freak and that was a lot of the messages so that morphed um, in adolescence in uh, I think around puberty to food and body Um, the ironic part is I remember going to a therapist when I was um, I think around 12 who turned to my mom and said she's doing this because of you you know she's you know this is her soothing behavior because of your stuff Um, and then my mom went into therapy and went on meds and then lo and behold the that, that behavior stopped but I'm a compulsive person, so and I had, didn't have any tools for coping for life. And as one goes through middle school and high school, there's a lot of big feelings, and so I didn't know where to put them. As one doesn't usually when they're not taught, you know, more positive tools. And so I turned to the food, and the um, the food and the obsessive thought. You know, as a compulsive person, like that's my brain gets stuck on a thought, and it was I have to get thin, I have to get thin, I have to get thin, I have to get thin. I was being told that too, you know, because as I was using food now, I was gaining weight, and then my mom was like, well, you better not be gaining weight now. And so that became the, like, new thing to fix. And in college, I learned um, how to fix with some eating disorders, which was the bulimia, thank you, and compulsive exercise. I went to uh, New York after school, and I um, gained a lot of weight really fast, about 30 pounds in three months. Because a lot of big feelings being on one's own, I was self-sufficient, I was paying for myself, I was, had a big job that I wanted in my field, but I had no idea how to cope with all of the big feelings that came along with it. So I would get yelled at at work, and I would go straight from my little desk to the kitchen, and like, if it, and I was in New York, and it was bagel day, like, everybody got out of the way. <laughs> but then I completely numbed myself out and was able to go back to my desk and get yelled at for the rest of the afternoon and was totally fine because I was completely high on bagels and cream cheese. Um, and I was using a lot of drugs and alcohol to like cover the fact that I was gaining a lot of weight. And um, I remember I went home and this is, the, I, I, I don't know why this stuff is coming up. It must be because it's coming up in my life today. But I went home because my mom had breast cancer and she was getting, um, she was having surgery. And I was there to be of service to her. And uh, we're sitting in the kitchen, and she's holding, like, you know, her arm because she'd just come back from hospital. And she looks at me, and she goes, your dad and I are really concerned. You've gained a lot of weight since you left for New York. So we really think that you need to go see a trainer or nutritionist, and we're going to pay for it. (laughs) That's just an example of, like, that's – there's no – what was valued in my life was – anything external, like not sitting and communicating and and like bonding over, you know, my mom having just had a successful surgery for breast cancer and talking about that, it was uh, the focus and emphasis on fixing my weight. So, um, you know, I like 
I got to fix this problem. The other areas of my life look good. Like I got to fix, I got to fix, I got to fix. And I moved to LA for a job. And that's when I was like, okay, got to fix this body thing. It's the new year's like got to fix. So, uh, I did the thing. I was doing all the things I knew to do, the diet pills, going to the gym when I could, binging, purging, <laughs> you know, all the good stuff that really works. And <laughs> put me in a really good headspace too. And um, the thing that actually, I was in the commercial diet program hoping that it would work. And the thing that actually scared me into program, because I'd heard about program six months before from my um, binge buddy in college. And she was on the East Coast. And she told me about Overeaters Anonymous. And I was like, well, I'm never going to a place with that name. So that's just never happening. And then the commercial diet program was leaving me completely demoralized every weekend. And then at work, um, I binged late at night and purged. And someone almost caught me at work. And if something comes in front of me in my job, like that's, I mean, that was God scaring me enough to be like, okay, I have to try something different. What I know is not working. So that's when I went to my first meeting. Um, that was over 10 years ago. And um, I heard, what did I hear? I heard, uh, find someone who has what you want and ask them how they're doing it and do what they do. So I wanted someone skinny, married, who kind of looked like me in my career field. So I found that. And I just asked her to... Um, what she did, and I was just willing to do whatever at that point. Like, I was just willing to do whatever. Uh, I was on my knees. I just had exhausted all of the solutions in my brain. Um, and so what it's looked like since I've come into program is it was, it's been incredibly slow, an incredibly slow journey, and thank God for that because it's kept me here for 10 years. If I had, like, found a solution physically, I know I would have gone back out without learning any coping mechanisms and skills. And remember, I just had all of these broken tools. I, I just needed to learn new ones, and no amount of therapy and you know outside help or whatever, it didn't stick the way that I that program has over the last ten years. So what happened was I had to just get some space from the food. So the first thing that basically I did was learn to have three meals a day, which was a revelation because as a restrictor and a compulsive exerciser, like like willpower. Hello, it's good to skip meals. It's good, like that was what I thought, like muscle through it, like skip meals. Like if I overate, I know how to like rebound from this and fix it. And what I've learned in program is in fact that feeds the cycle of, of, of binging. Um, and one would think like, with, you know, I think I'm so smart, that didn't stick. That's because I have this disease. It like doesn't let things stick in rational ways. That makes sense. So the only thing I did was I put space between my meals. I had three meals a day, and that left space to try and learn how to use these tools. So I picked up a bunch of new tools that are not broken. I learned how to write, um, which for a bulimic has been invaluable. Like when I have big feelings, I can't tolerate it. I still can't tolerate it. Like if I'm at work and something really bad happens, like I feel like I want to crawl out of my skin. Um, and the kitchen's right over there. There's plenty of other things I can pick up to take the edge off. And what I have to do a lot of times when the, the feeling is so overwhelming, especially as a bulimic, like I just need to get it up. So I'll go into my personal email and what I'll do is I like, like word vomit. Thank you. I'll just like word vomit in an email and sometimes I send it to someone and share it or sometimes I just like send it to myself and it just like gets it out of my head and it gives me pause. And that's the other thing I've learned in this program, like how to pause and look for God um, instead of react right away and take the edge off right away. Because, again, like as an addict, to this day, my natural response is if I'm having an uncomfortable feeling, how do I fix it? Um, and it's been a practice of learning how to tolerate those feelings. So 
the evolution of my program was that I came into program, I put some just some structure around my food, learned how to use some tools, and it was about, I don't know, three or four years into recovery that I was finally willing to um, address my weight. Like, I started getting some sanity in my brain and, like, learning how to unwind the messages. The thing I... The message that one of the biggest gifts of this program was that that number on the scale, when I get down to it, doesn't mean my life is going to be awesome. It doesn't mean I'm going to be happy. And that seems so, like, duh. But it really, I really had to, like, get sober from the food and from other things to really feel that. Um, and to remember, too, like, when I was at my thinnest, like, 25 pounds less than I am now, I was crazy, and I didn't have the things that I thought that I wanted. It didn't give me all the things that I thought were going to make it magic and okay. So that was one of the biggest lessons I learned. But it, there was a certain point where I did want to address um, the physical component of this program, so I sought outside help. And, again, this is God and, and the evolution of my spiritual practice and, and how I use God on a day-to-day basis has, you know, these are the moments that I, you know, add to a daisy chain to make me feel like there is a higher power out there looking out for me. So I went to see outside help, and the woman has all these, she's an expert, she has all these fancy machines, and she said to me, she's like, how, how much do you think you should weigh? And I said this arbitrary number that doesn't end in a zero or a five. It just, <laughs> it, it ends in a four. Um, I don't know where I got it. I'm like Abby's calculations, because Abby knows best, and the BMI and all of that stuff. And she's like, that's interesting you came up with that number. Because the lowest your body should be, by my calculations of like your genetics and your build, is 16 pounds more than that. So anytime you were below this number I'm telling you, you were underweight and your body was starving itself. I was like, wow, okay. Maybe I don't know best. Maybe, you know, maybe there, there, I, you know, there's other people out there. Maybe there's another plan that I just don't know. And so now I look for people, like th- that's God speaking to me through other people. And I look for that like all through my daily life now so so what happened and i'm just gonna get really honest because i'm an addict like it didn't it wasn't like hunky-dory like i put it down and i'm sober from everything no it was a whack-a-mole game i put down the food and like a toxic relationship came up um and for me sometimes i have to learn lessons like really hard in order to like put down um behaviors that aren't working look i had to get into a 12-step program to put down the you know the behaviors with food and so I had to go through some really nasty stuff, um, relationship-wise, to put down some old behaviors. And then that came to, that I put that away, and then this big job came up. So this job took up pretty much my entire life, and uh, it left a lot, a lot less room for self-care. And I need to do a lot of stuff every day to, to like, deal with life. Like, I get up in the morning, the first thing I do, and I'm a Jew, I get down on my knees, and I pray. So that took a long time for me to do. <laughs> but what happened was, is I kept asking people how they had, phys- who had, <clears throat> excuse me, physical recovery in this program, what they were doing. Um, and everybody said that they got down on their knees in the morning. So I'm like, well, I'm going to try it. And then as soon as I did that, coupled with my outside help, the weight started coming off. So that's God too. So I get down on my knees every morning and I say the first, second, and third step and the serenity prayer and the uh, third step prayer. And that, you know, reminds me that like there's a higher power all this crazy chatter that's going on in my brain from when i wake up i don't need to pay attention to it for about like five minutes so that lasts about five minutes and then um i meditate in the morning now for 10 minutes and the meditation has been 
It took, that also took me a really long time to be willing to do. But um, when I travel, like I need, and I don't have meetings, I needed something really quick to like really quiet my brain and give me space. And the meditation has been such like a godsend when I travel, um, and all the time. So I do it now imperfectly every day, and it, that's where I hear God. So. So what my life looks like today is, you know, I put down um, toxic relationship, big job came up, started using alcohol to deal with the big jobs. I didn't have time with my tools, dabbled in that other program, ultimately got some tools from there, but ultimately decided, you know, this is my primary disease and these meetings are where I need to be. Um, and then um, and then what happened? And then I just started, I think it was when I started meditating, like the, the extreme behaviors in any area of my life, just, you know, I haven't been doing that. And what I... Used to determine, thank you. Do I have five more? Five more? Seven, seven more, yes. Lucky seven. Um, so, what I determine, like if something's coming up in my life and I start feeling icky, like, and that's the beauty and genius of this disease, of this, of recovery, is I'm able to have that, like, and I call it God, but that feeling in my gut, like when I'm doing something and it's like probably a little shady or not right or not really so clean, I get this feeling in my stomach. And so, um, if I'm engaging in any behavior and I start getting that feeling in my stomach and it starts making my life unmanageable, that's when I go to another room to address it. That's my barometer of things. Um, so, yeah, so t- today, I like this is how I navigate the world in my life. Like, I don't know how to do this life. I don't. I show up and I do the footwork and then, like, I get answers from God and sometimes from you guys. So it's been a lot in the last two years of, like, um, I think I led this meeting probably about three and a half years ago right when I had a big career crisis. My career is like the biggest part of my life and I had never had an, an instance where I didn't know what the next step was in my career. And I got fired from a job and what happened was God, an opportunity came up literally down the hall as I was getting fired. And so I just went from this job that I got fired to that was incredibly toxic to this one down the hall that was incredibly wonderful. Um, and what I had put out to God, because I didn't know, it was months and months of being like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what the next step is going to be. And what, what I've heard in the rooms is, if you don't know the answer, keep asking God, keep asking the question, eventually the answer will come. And I kept asking God, God, I don't know what the next step is. God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, here's what I know. I want to work for decent human beings. I want to work, you know, and then like two other things about um, what I wanted the job to look like. And lo and behold, I kept asking the question. This toxic job was lifted from me, and this beautiful, wonderful job was given to me. And that wasn't me, because I didn't know, and I couldn't figure out the answer. So that was the last time I think I led here. And what it's looked like is I'm like, I just followed those people in that job, and it's been incredibly wonderful, and it gave me the opportunity to... Um, Because I was listening to, you know, messages that were coming to me for me to take an opportunity on the side of my job. Um, And I'm not going to be oblique. I think that's hard for people to understand, especially if you're new. I work in film. I work in production. And um, an opportunity came for me to do a side project to produce something on the side. And my brain, my, like, fear-based addiction was like, no, you can't do that. There's no way, like, you don't know how. You won't be able to do it perfectly, because that's a big thing for me. Like, I don't like doing things that I can't do perfectly, which is crazy, because then you don't learn anything new. Um, And part of the journey is making mistakes, and so I've learned how to do that. That's what this program has also helped me to do, is, like, learn how to show up imperfectly, and it's okay, and be vulnerable, and that's how I have much better relationships, too. So my entire life looks differently because of this program. Um, And so I was... uh, 
presented this opportunity. And first I was like, no, not going to do it. And then it kept presenting itself to me. And I've learned in these rooms, if God keeps showing up in a certain way, say yes. Because, you know, then the lesson gets harder and harder and harder. So I just was like, fine, yes, I'll do it. And it's been two years of me just not knowing what I was doing and just showing up and doing the footwork and leaving the results up to God. And um, it's just gotten so big and crazy in the last year to have both these things. But it's the, God, the timing of it all, and I just want to explain the timing so I know that, like, this is God in my life. Because I couldn't plan it per- more perfectly. Um, I was working on a really big project for my day job in film and trying to save this movie. And I kept having to go abroad. And finally, after like six to eight weeks of like a crazy roller coaster of emotion and uh, pain, we got it back on track and I landed in the States. It was like mid-October. And the night I landed in the States, I learned my side project had been greenlit. And I, like, that's God. Like, there, there was, that's just crazy timing. That's insane. And so, since for the last six months, I've been now doing two full-time jobs. And I'm like, to the point that I thought it was going to break. But what I always put first was my program and my, um, my recovery. That's like, no matter what, no matter what it looks like, I'm never too busy for this program. Because what I've learned is that as soon as I start being like, I'm too busy for this, like, shit starts going wrong. Excuse my language. Like, um, in, in the stuff that I think is important. Like, wrong. So I, uh, I don't want that to happen, so it keeps me motivated to come here and come to meetings. And if I can't come to meetings, I listen to the podcast. And if I can't listen to the podcast, I text my fellows. I mean, thank God for technology. It keeps me connected to you guys. and keeps me grounded. Um, but they, there's no way I could have done this. Um, and I ended up um, in January, like, I'm not perfect. I can't handle it all. I had, like, a kind of a breakdown. Like, not kind of. I had a breakdown, like a hysterical, screaming, crying fit. In January, when I was with my parents, um, it was one of those things. If I don't do the work, like, this is what happens. I know this historically. Um, And what happened was I was really burnt out and stretched too thin. Uh, Thank you, and I'll wrap up. And I'll say that um, I didn't do the work that I need to do to see my mom, and I went there with the expectation that she was going to give me comfort and understanding. And what do we hear in this program? Like, you don't go to the hardware store for milk. (laughs) So that's not what I got. And... (laughs) And I, it was really hard, and it had, and it broke me, and I, like, cried. But I cried to my sister, who's a safe person that I've learned. And I was vulnerable with her. And what showed up was, like, outside help. So I'm back in outside help, because that's what I do. Like, I, I, that's what this program teaches me. Go, you know, go ask people who have uh, what you want and go do what they're doing. So I asked someone who was dealing with the same stuff, and they gave me a suggestion. And now I'm seeing a new person who's blowing my mind. And this is just peeling away the layers of the onion. And that's what this program teaches me to do. I never graduate because life keeps on happening. So thank you guys for letting me share. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Question. Hi, Abby. Thank you for your leave. Um, do you have any um, experience dealing with recurring or ongoing resentments with like, <coughs> family or co-worker type situations? And if so, how do you apply your program to dealing with I'm laughing because yes. Uh, the question was, do I have any recurring uh, resentments that I'm dealing with, family, coworkers? 
Uh, yeah, all the time. Um, as I have briefly described, currently I'm dealing with some major mom resentment that I thought I had put to bed. Like, you know, via outside help and the fourth step, which she was all over, <laughs> and continuing ten steps, um, I really thought I had I put it to bed. Like, this was an issue I'd done with. And then it was actually a shock to me, the visceral reaction that I had in January to my mom. Because um, I just normally know, like, this is the way she behaves. I know I can't change people. I act as this program has taught me, and, and this is really helpful when it comes to recurring resentments, is that it is not my job to change anybody. I live, the traditions tell me I live by, um, it's, we're an example of attraction rather than promotion. I've tried to change people in the past. That was my relationship horribleness. And that was just, that did not bode well for me. I'm, all, I'm the one that gets hurt in those situations when I try to change other people's behavior, even though I think it's for their better, for the good. So I think that's some Al-Anon stuff, but um, I think I know best. All I know is what's best for me. What's best for me when I'm having recurring resentments is just to keep doing the work. So what I normally do when I'm going to be around people that I know trigger me is I put up what I call my serenity bubble. And uh, <laughs> that's what I do normally when I go see my mom is, like, I do a lot of writing. I'm, like, I do some writing just to, like, let me get clear on what my issues are versus what her issues are. Like, because a lot of times there's just, I've got my own stuff going on, and one comment from my mom could just then trigger all my stuff. So I get really clear on what's mine versus what's hers. And then I uh, meditate a lot <laughs> when I'm around her. I leave the room. Um, I kick my sister under the table. Uh, <laughs> we text each other. Um, so it's just just being really super aware uh, of the people that trigger me and cause my resentments and doing me doing the work around it and not expecting them to do any work or change. Um, in terms of coworkers, my sponsor's laughing because <laughs> I've been dealing, oh my God, so many resentments towards coworkers. Um, the big job that I had, my old boss, was famous, is famous for being like a psychopath. Um, and so instead of resenting the way that he is, which is the way he's been for 60-something years, it's on me to do the work to not, again, to, like, not take it in. Um, and it was really hard being around that kind of toxic energy all the time. It had an effect. Like, I gained 10 pounds in the three years I was at that company, and um, that was really tough. Like, it had an effect. And so what I ended up choosing was my recovery and to get out of that situation around someone that that's toxic. So I left that job because my recovery and my physical well-being and my sanity and my serenity wasn't worth it. So, you know, if it gets if I if the work's not working to like put up my serenity bubble, then I get out of the way. So, yeah. It sounds like you uh, the crazy hours that you you can have crazy hours. How do you plan ahead with the food? Uh, how do I plan ahead with the food when it comes to crazy hours? Um, that is a good question. Um, Pretty much anywhere I go, I can like I can find food, and it's just a matter of of taking time. Um, so, when it comes to let's say like being on set, like the craft service table is not my it's not mine. Like that's just not an option. Um, <laughs> like that's not, yeah, I don't go there. Um, but what I will do is I will get real back to basics when it comes to three meals a day and a snack if needed. So I'll I'll pack snacks with me if I'm at a film festival like. I have to have snacks with me because running around like that, like, and this is recovery too. Sometimes I forget to eat. Whoa, that's never happened in the tent. Like, whoa, that would have never happened. So I have to have stuff with me to make sure that I'm 
you know, fueling myself so I can get through. Um, because I don't want, if I start getting hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, which I do in those situations, like when I get back to the hotel or the house, like that food that's not mine starts to look really appealing. It starts to look like the answer. Um, so I just have to, it's, it's planning when I get up in the morning, like I sit, I do my, like when I'm traveling, even when I'm at a film festival, like I do my meditation in the morning, like I'll try and work out a little bit in my room and and move a little just to move my body. I like, I make it a priority. And what, here's like an amazing God shot too, is that this company I'm at now, my boss and I, we were in Sundance and we were sitting in the living room and when he's like, he's like, so let's talk about meditation. I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> so I'm at a place where my boss meditates and is like into meditation. So I'm really like, that's God. Like right now I'm really allowed to do my self-care at this job. And that was a huge priority for me in looking for the next step. Because for me, like my recovery and the sanity and what I've gotten in these rooms is more important than any job or career success. Thank you, Abby. Can you talk about the nine step in your experience making amends and Yeah. Can I talk about the ninth step? and the amends process and the promises. Um, the amends were not as scary as I thought they were going to be. Uh, I, I, I heard people say that. Uh, that was true for me. Um, my parents were one, uh, obviously, because uh, a lot of times people you resent, you also have to owe amends to. And um, that was like super rushed. Uh, and I, and it, they were totally imperfect. I was in a hotel room with them in New York, and I was like, I gotta say something to you. Uh, I am sorry that I did this thing, and okay, bye. And they're like, what? Excuse me? <laughs> what was it? What's going on here? And like, they didn't want to engage. God forbid we talk about real things and real feelings and at my program at all. Um, and so that was pretty easy, in fact. Um, I had to make amends to my roommates that I've had over the years for stealing food. Um, one was like, Oh, yeah, you know, whatever. And the other one was like, yeah, I used to get really pissed when you used to eat all my food. And I was like, oh, okay. And it made us closer. But, like, she was, like, again, like, with my relationships, the second I'm more vulnerable and honest and real, my relationships started getting better and better. And I think that's part of the nine-step promises. Um, I mean, it's not one of the written ones, but, you know, in that vein. And so my relationships got so much better because people were willing to be honest with me back and not, like, have to crack this veneer and the facade of, like, weirdo perfectionism. Um, the scariest amends I had to make, and this is so embarrassing to admit, was I was involved with a guy in high school that I was in love with. He was, like, my good friend, and he, like, I don't know. He strung me along for a really long time, and I had lied and told people we were dating. We weren't, and he busted me on it. And that was... I had such shame around that, like... When I was 16 years old, I'm 34, like still holding on to such shame that it was like one of those like things. And I had to get in contact with him and apologize for that. And what is amazing is like I had viewed the relationship in one way and he, his response to me was like, I don't even remember that. You're not apologizing for having done this to me, having hooked up with someone else at prom when you went with me. And so his version of our, like the nature of the relationship was so completely polar opposite to my version. And I, it's embarrassing to admit that, but like that's one of those things. Like my brain tells me things that is not real, and like my version of events is sometimes completely not real. And to not listen to teach me how to not listen to that all the time, and that just by being honest and showing up, I can get these gifts of reality. Um, and my life started getting better as soon as I started doing the four step, I think. But like after the ninth step, like yeah, it's it's good. It's good stuff. Yeah. 
Oh, Michael Ventura. Thank you so much for being at um, so you mentioned in your in your share that you get to you get this pause, like you you now have a pause that you didn't have. What do you do today still even in program ten years to mm-hmm. get the pause from a bad behavior, compulsive behavior, whether it's food or relationship or mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, what do I do to maintain uh, the ability to take that pause during the day? Um, well, I talk to you on a regular basis. <laughs> um, no, I have to, um, I have to make time and space in my day, uh, for, for my program in order to be able to take that pause. Um, one, I have to be sober from the food. Like, I can't have any clarity unless I'm sober from the food. That's just like, that's just numero uno. And my food doesn't really get wonky. Once my food gets wonky, that means like I have just ignored my program for way too long for my food, to, for, for things to show up on my plate. Usually it shows up in my behavior first. So as soon as things start showing up in my behavior and I'm not able to take that pause, that's when I'm like, okay, back to basics. Like, I gotta start doing the things like, that slow me down. Um, so it's that, the, it's the rituals every day that give me the pause. That like the waking up and getting on my knees, it reminds me like, Yes, I want to reach for my phone and start looking at my email, but like that's not my higher power. So then I have to. So first thing in the morning, like I have to remind myself who my higher power is, and that's getting on my knees and saying those prayers. Um, the meditation helps me take the pause. It slows my brain down. And again, this is something I did not want to do at all, as you know. And then only because I was forced to, because I didn't have my other tools that I started meditating about three plus years ago. And I call it my mental Xanax. Like it works just as fast. I love it. And so that, um, the meditation really helps me pause during the day, too. Michael. Thanks, Anna. Yeah. You might have already answered the question, but so, like, when I get in the fear, in the big book, it says God either is or isn't. And God isn't when I'm really in the fear, and it sounds like you were in that place maybe when you had your sort of breakdown and stuff. So, and then to go back to God, it seems like I call it Pollyanna, it's not real. So, how do you. You know, mm-hmm. I like to get back to God before I get into that place of mm-hmm. you know, where the fear seems stronger. Um, can you maybe relate that to a yeah. Two? yeah, thank you. The question is, um, in terms of fear, we hear God is... Uh, well, the way I interpret it, like uh, Michael asked for me to talk about fear, being in fear or not fear. Um, I believe God is everything or God is nothing. But I don't... My personal belief is that fear is a natural response to life. Um, so I don't look at it as a bad thing. I look at it as like, let's explore this feeling. Like, why am I, why am I so scared in this situation? And for, um, to relate to a specific example, for the opportunity to produce this TV show, like, why am I feeling such fear? Why am I like, no, I'm not going to do this. Why is this opportunity keep presenting itself and I keep saying no? And here's God, right? This is God in it. Um, a book showed up on my doorstep. And I kept saying no to this opportunity by a woman who really talks about, and I'm not going to say the, uh, about leaning in a lot. <laughs> um, I didn't order the book. Someone else ordered it for me as a present, and it showed up on my doorstep. And I read the book, and the book talked about, um, and, and you know, this is uh, outside um, literature, so I won't talk about the message, actually. I will talk about it showing up, and what I learned in that book gave me the courage to really start looking at my fear around this opportunity. And what came up was that I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to do it right and do it perfectly. And that's my that's part of my character defects, of like not being willing to show up um, imperfectly. 
And so the fear, it was just, I look at it as a guidepost of like, okay, let's go explore what's happening over there. Um, I just think it's a natural response um, to things. And God, I believe God is everything or God is nothing. When I'm in me, like that's, you know, that TV show opportunity would have gone terribly, horribly awry if I hadn't brought God into every single decision and stuff. That I know. Um, but fear, I look at, I get scared every single day. I got scared leading this, you know, and I, wanting to lead this meeting. And I said, God, you know, help me. Help me say something that will hopefully be helpful. So as long as I bring God in with the fear and I do the work around it, I think it's, you know, I don't look at it as a bad thing. Hi, Thanks. Um, is there any uh, particular tradition that resonates with you either in a positive way mm-hmm. or a negative way? Is there a tradition that speaks to me in a positive or negative way? Let me look at the traditions. (laughs) Let's go there first. Um, I really like uh, the only requirement for OA membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. Because for me, I had a lot of judgment about the fact that I came into a 12-step program when I was, I don't know, I was probably 30 pounds heavier than I am now. So I felt I was judging myself like, well, I don't have, my problem's not big enough. Um, and even too, like when I was in college and I was throwing up, I had read in a girly magazine that if you don't throw up more than twice a week, you're not really bulimic. (laughs) Oh, magazines, they have so much good information. Um, (laughs) and so I was like, well, I'm clearly not bulimic enough because I only did that amount of time. So I had a lot of judgment, and the fact that this program, it's like anybody can walk into these rooms if you have a desire to stop eating compulsively. And it's such a leveler. It doesn't matter what we do outside the rooms. It doesn't matter you know, our socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter like anything. We're all welcome here, and we all have the exact same ism and issues. And I'm not so special, and I'm not so horrible, and I'm just one among many. And that, I find, is the magic of these rooms, why I need to come to meetings all the time, because it keeps me really grounded and keeps me one among many, which in the very beginning of the program I had a hard time with. But it's the thing that's made me most um, able to walk this road, is that, like, I don't have to do it any better or worse than anybody else. Like, I just have to do it the way God's letting me do it. So, yeah, I guess that one. Thank you very, very much, Andy. Um, uh, this is sort of piggybacking on that question, but um, do you have any experience with um, just uh, self-centeredness, self-obsession? And what? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what do you do when you find yourself in that? And kind of, you know, it's just sort of your do I ever find myself in self-obsession uh, and self-centeredness? Uh, yes. <laughs> All the time. Uh, that's my, I think I, I revert back to that innately in every um, in every moment. I want to think about me and my needs and my desires and my wants. And uh, if I spend too much time there, I start screwing around with God's plan and it starts not going well. So I find the best way to get out of self-obsession is service. Service, 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 service. Uh, I love picking up the phone and calling people. I did not like doing that for a long time. Um, But I find it's the quickest way for me to get out of my head is to ask somebody else how they're doing. Um, Is that it? Close? Five more? Okay. So, uh, yeah. And then I start writing a lot because it's when I start thinking I have really good ideas about how things are going when things aren't going my way is when I know I'm in self-obsession. Because I'll do the footwork 
I, that's all my job is doing the footwork and putting the results up to God. As soon as I start thinking like Abby knows the right plan, Abby knows the right idea. That's again, when things start going, not the way I want them to. So I have to just get out of my head and service is the fastest way for me to do that. I'll try and give an example. Uh, the question is, um, uh, how did I come to my con- my own concept of God, and uh, how do I determine the line between my footwork and God's, and then the results up to God? So raised as a Jew, there was no real like practical application for God in my life. Um, the stories, the traditions, that was great, but I just had no sense of spirituality, really. And for me, my faith in a higher power has been sort of testing God a little bit. Like, really? Like, let's, let's, this is what I want. What, what, what are you, you going to do about that? And, like, how is this going to turn out? Really, if I leave the results up to you, what's going to happen? And um, by, again, like, having these tangible pieces of evidence in my life of God showing up, I was able to form a concept where I know 100% that I'm being taken care of and there's a higher plan. Like, the way things have gone now in hindsight, like, if I look over the past 10 years... Like, I was so angry at God. Um, and, it, and in the beginning, it was acting as if, because that's what my sponsor told me. I was like, mm, I don't really care about this God thing. I really just want to learn all these tools and then get out. Um, but it was uh, acting as if in the beginning. And then when I would see behind me, like, in time, like, the way things had worked out were, like, better than I could have imagined. For example, in the beginning of program, I um, was at this company... Ironically, the company I'm at now, and this is like full circle craziness. So I was an assistant at this studio, and they told me I was going to get promoted. I was working my ass off, and they weren't promoting me. But it was part of a big restructuring. It was basically two years of like, hanging in there, hang tight, we're going to promote you. Come to three years, and they're like, oops, hiring promotion freeze, no promotion. And I was like, are you kidding me? What? This was not my plan. Um, and I ended up having to leave the company to go to the next level at a, like another company, which came up so fast and so gently and so easy as like the next step that that had to be God too. I didn't see it that way at the time. The time was incredibly resentful. Cut to, that was 2007. Um, and I'll wrap it up. So uh, cut to now I'm at that same company only by like me like doing that thing which is the footwork is I just show up for the next indicated right action. I don't think about the big plan. That's how I discern the difference between my footwork and God. Like, I can't think about the stuff down the line. I just show up for the thing that presents itself in front of me. And I've, so I've, after that experience, I've just sort of like, um, the imagery I use is like going down the whitewater rapids and like you fall out, you just go like this and just like go down with the wild ride. And so for my career, I've been doing that since that experience because it was so painful to think that I knew the best way. And cut to today, I'm back at that studio that I was there in 2004. No people that were in my department are there. I have a higher title and doing more things than I ever would have done had I stayed at that company. So holy shit, that's God, right? I just made my way there by doing the footwork. It's insane. So thanks for letting me share.